So it's an honor to serve you this morning. It really, really is truly. I love this church and I love the people in it. And I just want to say, I know that Craig has been preaching from a stool during the series. And I hope you don't mind, but I'm just going to stand. I, I, I thought if I sat on a stool that I would get too excited and I would just slide right on off into the front row. And ain't nobody wants to see that. So on that note, let's pray. Oh God, your presence is here. And I just pray, God, and I want to echo Eric's prayer because it's so spot on for today's message. That, God, I just pray that the truth of your grace, the wondrous, scandalous nature of your grace, that it would move from our heads right down to our hearts and our souls. And God, I just pray that you would crack us wide open this morning and that you would have your way, have your way, have your way. We love you. In Jesus' precious name. And everybody said? Amen, amen. amen. You want to fix my mic? Sorry, you guys. There we go. So, if you've been tracking with us, um, we are continuing our series called Lament. And over the past two weeks, we've been looking at um, the different ways and shades of how we express lament. And one of the definitions that was introduced in week one is this. Was it up? There we go. A passionate expression of grief or sorrow. Yay. <laughs> Yay. And, and I have to wonder, it's like, why? Why do a series on lament? And Craig mentioned several reasons, and one being that in our Kiwi culture and stoic British stock, Kiwis tend to have a stiff upper lip attitude towards grief. In general, y'all find it hard to express your feelings. Am I correct? I mean, I'm Latin and grew up Roman Catholic, so man, we're all about emotion. Um, it, it's it's kind of like... When I think about Kiwis and how they express their emotions, it's kind of like that Hilux ad. I don't know if you've seen it where two mates go for a drive in a Hilux to have a chat because one of them is going through a hard time. Now check out this clip of a Kiwi blog version of having a deep and meaningful conversation. Hey, uh, sorry to hear about, you know, you want to talk about it? Yeah, sure. You got me singing Even though the news is bad You got me singing The only song I ever had You got me thinking All the places we could hide You got me singing
good chat. You good chat. That good? Yep. Good chat. Good chat. Good chat. But you know it's true. You know it's true. And sometimes, but sometimes that's all you need is just a good mate to be with you when you're going through a tough time. But we do find it hard to lament, and I think it's getting harder. Um, and like Craig mentioned, could it be because we are living in an era of social media? I mean, I know my generation's addicted to it, and millennials and the generation coming up behind them, the iGens, little i, capital G-E-N-S, are a generation that are literally growing up in front of screens. We may be more connected on our phones, but there is a growing disconnect with face-to-face -face interactions. Social media is great, but let's face it, we only project and post those happy parts of our life. You know, those soft, focused, filtered selfies, perfect pictures of perfect homes, um, eating perfect food, going on perfect holidays, seemingly living perfect lives. That's what you post online. And all you have to do is scroll through all this perceived perfection on Facebook, Instagram, and Pinterest, just to name a few, to feel really stink about your life. <laughs> but you know what's refreshing? Pinterest fail, which I love. It's where people have tried to duplicate or replicate something they saw on Pinterest, an awesome recipe, um, a gorgeous Ann Gettys photo, only to fail miserably. And I'm all about it, man. Have a look at these Pinterest slides. Have a look at this. Saw this hedgehog cake on Pinterest. Nailed it. Check that out. Nailed it. Yep. Minion. <laughs> Nailed it. Yep. That's what it looks like. How about the fruit platter? Nailed it. Although I think that looks pretty good. <laughs> How about this one? Baby photo. Perfection. Reality. Yeah? That'd be a great 21st. Look at that. Perfection. Ah, it's a bit heavy, the, the little ear, ear thing, which I think is gorgeous. Perfection. Reality. And here's one of my favorites right here. SpongeBob cake. <laughs> Nailed it. Nailed it. Isn't that great? Isn't life like that sometimes? Some high expectation of how you think your life should look in the reality. And every time I try and hit some standard of perfection, I look like that SpongeBob cake. <laughs> and I don't know about you, I'm not nailing anything. I'm not nailing anything. And I think the danger is when we feel we have to hide behind that perceived perfection here at church. We're all here this morning looking so nice, dressed in our Sunday best, hair and makeup done, um, looking fabulous, smiling from ear to ear. And like Eric said, on the outside, you would never know what's really going on on the inside or what burdens you may be carrying or how your soul might be lamenting some grief or loss. One of the definitions of lament that really spoke to me was this. Lament, to regret strongly, to be full of regret and grief. You see, the Bible is full of epic stories of victories, amazing stories of faith and the faithful. But the Bible also tells stories, thankfully, of epic failures. Epic failures by the people of God who, I'm sure, wish they could go back and have a do-over. 
wish they could press the delete button and start again. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever blown it royally? Or do something you never thought you would do or were capable of doing? Ever broke a promise? Let someone down? Fail in a friendship or a relationship? Have you ever lost your temper? Yelled at and said hurtful things to people you love? Apologize only to do it again the very next day? Ever blown it morally? I mean, the list could go on and on and on. And if we're honest, we've all been there. I know I have. And for many of us, we get stuck there. We get stuck in the shame of our failure, stuck in the lament of guilt, shame, and regret. And we're left wondering, what does God think of me now? What does God think of you and me when we fail big time? And this morning, we're going to look at that by looking at the life of Peter. Oh, Peter, <laughs> how I can so relate to this guy because he is so like me. He's so flawed and human. Peter was a disciple of Jesus, one of the 12 who walked closely with Jesus. Peter was a guy who was kind of all heart and maybe half head. He tended not to really think things through. He was a ready aim fire kind of guy, which isn't always a bad thing. Like in that major moment in Jesus' life when he looked at his disciples and he said, who do you think that I am? And Peter was the first one to speak up and he said, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Go, Peter, right on, you're so right. But then, just a few verses later, Peter starts giving Jesus advice. Jesus tells the disciples about his impending death and Peter's like, hold on, Messiah, you've got this all wrong. This is not going to happen to you. And he starts telling Jesus how to do his life. And Jesus has to say to him, get behind me, Satan. You see, Peter's not always thinking things through. And later in the upper room at the Last Supper, Jesus tells his disciples um, that they will all scatter and fall away. And Peter pipes up with, hey, these guys might, but not me. Even if I have to die for you, Jesus, I will never disown you. You know, that statement will be true of Peter later, but not now, not in this moment. And Jesus tells him, truly I tell you this very night before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. You will deny that you even know me, Peter. And how about in the Garden of Gethsemane when Peter keeps falling asleep? Jesus wants him to stay awake and pray, but Peter's just not into it. And then when he does wake up, he sees all these troops around him, surrounding him with, with weapons and flames and clubs. And Peter gets up and he pulls out a sword to attack them. He's like, everybody back up. Back up, Lord, I've got this. And he takes a swipe at one of the servants of the high priest, misses, and he cuts off an ear. And Jesus tells him to knock it off and put away his sword. And they arrest Jesus and take him to a courtyard. And they beat him and mock him. And Peter follows at a distance. Peter then watches his whole nation, his whole peer group, deny and mock his Lord. And there in that moment, with all his adrenaline sapped out, he sits around a charcoal fire to warm himself. And a little girl says to him, hey, aren't you one of them? Don't you know that guy? And he's just like, no, no, I don't know him. And he's asked again, are you sure? Because you kind of look like one of those that trapped with him. And he's like, no, no, I don't know him. 
And the third time, just to prove that he's really not one of those religious people, he starts cussing just to show them, I'm not like him. I don't know anything about him. And at that moment, not only does the rooster crow, but the book of Luke says that Jesus looked right at Peter. And Peter runs, and it says that he wept bitterly. Oh, the guilt, shame, and regret that must have been in those bitter tears. The sad thing is, I think a lot of us know what that feels like to violate not only our own consciousness, but to violate what we know, but we know what we know is the expressed will of our God. What's God going to do with people like us? You see, most scholars agree that John chapter 20 seems to be a fitting way to end the Gospels, that it's a perfect ending to a great story, except that it's not. There's one more chapter. And can I just say, thank you, God, for John chapter 21. And if you have your Bibles, can you please turn to John chapter 21? But we'll also have it on the screen for you. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, which is also another name for the Sea of Galilee. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. And they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Let's just stop there for a minute. Um, the passage starts with, after this, Jesus revealed himself again. What is the this? It's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He died and rose from the dead, and he starts appearing to his disciples. And it's confusing to them. They don't understand it. He's not hanging around. But it's starting to get some expectation and hope built up in them. And the book of Mark says that he appeared to the women, and he tells them, hey, go and tell the boys and Peter to meet me in Galilee. And I love that, and Peter. That's right, Peter, you screwed up, but I still want you with me but I don't think Peter gets it. And so they go to Galilee, and they arrive there, and when they arrive there, they are meant to wait on Jesus. But Peter makes a decision. He arrives at the Sea of Galilee, and he says, I'm going fishing. Why go fishing, Peter? And I have to wonder if Peter at that moment, as he's looking out across the sea, he thinks that he's disqualified from being a disciple now. He's denied his Lord, just like Jesus said he would do. So he takes a regressive step back. He defaults back to the familiar. Ever know someone like that? Ever know someone who used to be on fire for the Lord, passionate about the things of God, but only to experience some epic failure or a hurt in some way that they just don't come to church anymore? They've disconnected and have fallen away and defaulted back to their old life, back to the familiar. Peter had been a fisherman all his life, and that's what he grew up doing, right up until that moment where Jesus said, hey, you know what, you used to do that, but now I want you fishing with me. I think shame and regret has pulled Peter in a different direction. And it's interesting because he's not alone. He stay, it says that the others with him said, we will go with you. You see, that says to me, you see, Peter's a leader. And here's what really got me, what really convicted me. 
church, our defaults, our pulling away, and our decisions to walk away spiritually and away from God, those decisions aren't just about us. It influences the people around us because we are all knitted together. You are an influencer. I'm an influencer. And our decisions, our defaults, influence those around us. It's never just about your life. And so they, um, so they get into the boat with him. And then it says, but that night they caught nothing. Why did they catch nothing? And we're going to find out later that it's God. That it's God coming after his kids because that's what he does. Is he going to let you go and waste your life? No, absolutely not. He's got a plan for you and he relentlessly pursues you. And it says, And just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. And he said to him, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. In the midst of their frustration and failed attempts, Jesus shows up. And I find it interesting that they don't know that it's Jesus. Why don't they know? What's up with that? Have you ever noticed that whenever Jesus appears after the resurrection, people aren't recognizing him? Does the resurrection body look different? Do they just not believe it's Jesus? Is he disfigured because Revelation tells us that he will be the only person in eternity that will still bear his scars? I don't know the answer to that, but they're going to figure out who it is in a moment. And I love the sense of humor that Jesus seems to have in the next sentence. He says, children, do you have any fish? He uses the word children, and he uses a masculine form. So literally, he's saying, little boys. And then he asks a question and, um, in a way that assumes a negative answer. He stands on the shore, and he says, hey, little boys, you don't have any fish, do you? In other words, hey, that lifestyle choice you've been following, that you've defaulted to, it's not really working for you, is it? And notice here, this is important. Notice here what Jesus is not doing. Is he screaming at them from the shore, saying, what are you doing in that boat? Didn't I tell you to wait for me in Galilee? No, no screaming. Jesus is almost humorous about it. Little boys, catch any fish? And I love their answer. It's just one word, no. And in verse 6, it says, And he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. And some of you may be thinking, Hey, I remember that passage. I've heard this fish story before. You may have heard it because it isn't the first time we've seen this. Jesus tells us the exact same miracle um, in Luke 5. He performed the exact same miracle in Luke 5. And when, he, and when did he do it? When did he perform that miracle? When he first called Peter. Do you see what's happening here, church? Jesus recreates the exact miracle where he first called Peter into relationship. That beautiful moment when Jesus looked at Peter in the face and he said, you are coming with me. I don't know about you, but I find that so beautiful. 
It's not Nathaniel's miracle, there's no fig tree. It's not Matthew's miracle, there's no tax booths. It's Peter's. It's Peter's. It's Jesus saying, hey, remember where we started this? It's still on, Peter. I haven't cast you aside. Nothing's changed. And then the penny starts to drop, and it says in the next verse, that disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it's the Lord. You see, John knew what was happening. He gets it. He knew how Peter felt. He knows that this miracle is being recreated. So he grabs Peter and he says, do you see what's happening, Peter? That's the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he had stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. And I love it. Peter pulls a total force gump, Lieutenant Dan, and jumps right into the water. I love it. And the penny must be dropping for Peter because did you notice? Did you notice? Instead of running away from Jesus, he runs towards him. And when they got on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net had not torn. And Jesus said to them, come, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, and he took the bread, and he gave it to them. And so with the fish. Sound familiar? This is now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Church, how does Jesus treat the wayward disciple? How does he treat those who have loved him, who have sworn allegiance to him, and yet have forayed into sin? Does he condemn? Does he yell? Does he lecture? Does he scream? Does he shake his head in disapproval? No, he cooks breakfast. You see, in that culture, to have someone sit at a meal with you was to invite them into a relationship. It's like Jesus is saying, you haven't lost connection with me. Come, let's sit and eat together. He invites them to breakfast even after they've all failed him. Church, that's grace and mercy on display. And just like in the upper room at the Last Supper when they're all together and Jesus knows in that room that Judas will betray him, Peter will deny him, and the rest of them will all run and scatter, what does Jesus do? He takes a towel and he washes their feet. And for some of us, that voice that whips you in your head, that beats you up in your head, that condemning voice, I think that many of us ascribe it to the Lord. He doesn't do it that way, though. When God comes towards you and me in our sin, the arm that always extends first is one of grace. It's grace. God will always come to us with grace first. And with the other hand, he extends the hand of kindness. He loves you. And if you're his kid, he cherishes you. And when you sin, is he pleased with it? Heck no. But he doesn't come with the hammer. He comes with arms outstretched, with grace and kindness. And scripture tells us that it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. And so Jesus recreates the fish scene 
but he doesn't stop there. He's going to move to recreate a second one. You see it in the word, charcoal fire. Did you notice it? How odd it is that he calls it a charcoal fire? Why does it say that? Well, the truth is it really is a weird word for fire because you get fire all over the Bible. But this word, charcoal fire, only shows up twice in the whole Bible. Both times in the book of John. One in this moment here, but the other, the other time is the fire that Peter was sitting around when he denied even knowing Jesus. And so Jesus recreates two moments for Peter. The moment we came to love each other and walk together and the moment you really screwed up. But that's what grace does. Jesus takes Peter to the moment of this failure and it says, you're still mine but now we've got to go back and deal with it. Does grace ignore sin? No. Grace by the blood of Jesus forgives all our sins and wipes the slate clean, but grace will make you deal with your heart. Jesus doesn't condemn us, but he calls us to repent, and that's what he's doing with Peter. And part of me wonders that when Peter landed on that shore and he saw that it was a charcoal fire, that inside he was like, Oh, no. He says this. And when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved. And he said to him the third time, when he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. You know, we could read those verses and think Jesus is just being mean to Peter. Because he starts out, he even starts off calling Peter by his full name, Simon, son of John. It's kind of like when you were a kid and you knew you were in trouble because your parents would call you by your full name. Jesus walks Peter through the three denials again with three do you love me's. And with every single one, with every single one, Peter, do you love me? It's like Jesus is ripping off the band-aid. He is restoring healing, cleaning, and most of all, he's calling Peter back into ministry. Do you love me? Yes. Then let's go, Peter. Let's go. There are hurting people out there. There's sheep to tend to. Let's move past your past. This is a word for us. Let's move past your past. Let's move past your failure. Come with me and let's go and build my church. And I think that Jesus is doing, what Jesus is doing here is that he's saving Peter's life. Because if Jesus hadn't dealt with Peter's failure, then every time Peter sat around a fire, he'd think of that night where he said, I don't even know him. And every time he heard a rooster crow, it would have haunted him his whole life. Jesus is rescuing and restoring him by saying, do you see that I still love you? Okay. Let's go to the place of brokenness, the place of your failure, and let's revive it. 
Let's make this horrible place of failure and regret a place of life and healing. That's what Jesus wants to do for us, too. Now, during this series, um, we've been playing different songs, secular songs of lament. And ones that have, the one that's been really speaking to me is a song called River by a young artist called Leon Bridges. Now, he wrote River during a real time of depression when he said he wasn't living like he knew he should. And what I love about it, it's a simple song, but it sounds like an old gospel spiritual. And I think it's profound in meaning. So is, if Dan could come out and sing the song River for us, that would be awesome. And when they're done, I'll come back. Thanks, team. wide road so long my heart lost you ten thousand miles gone oh I want to come near and give you every part of me there's blood on my hands my lips are unclean Mama always told me to the good Lord, and you wipe your slate clean. Take me to your river. I wanna know, wanna know, wanna 
to me about that song and my daughter used to play it in her room and I'd be like that's such a depressing song but it, it was so good but I love the, the verse it says I want to know I want to know can I go can I go to the river I want to know I want to you want to know maybe someone here today wants to know if you're still loved and accepted the answer is yes yes let him take you to the river like I said at the beginning, I don't know what burdens you have been carrying. And for some of you, you have walked in here with guilt, shame, and regret weighing on you. And yeah, you're still coming to church, but that fire of pursuing Christ's glory in this world is gone. And you find that when it's time to pray, you don't really pray. You just kind of look at your feet. And when it's time to sing, you just kind of look around. And when it comes to seeking God on your own, in your house you just never find the time the passion's gone and perhaps it's because when you think about God all you can think about is that burden of guilt that you have because of bad decisions you've made but can I tell you something church Jesus is calling you to come and you know what it looks like it looks like this and what Jesus is saying to us he's saying children little children How's carrying that regret and shame working out for you? Come, sit, rest. And my prayer is that may God lead us and may he tend to us. Even if it means that he takes you back, rips off some band-aids, and he revisits some hurtful places. But in doing so, he's saving your life. Let's not give another day of being dominated and stuck in the lament of guilt, shame, and regret. Let's let God restore and heal those broken places in our souls. Let me pray. Oh God, I pray that you will grab, that we will grab the truth of scripture, that you are slow to anger, quick to forgive, compassionate and abounding in love, that your arm of grace is extending to us and it's saying, come, come, come to the river, come. Your healing is waiting. Your healing is waiting. God, it says in your word in Lamentations, the book of Lament, 
It says that your mercies are new every morning. And I love that because I get the picture of that every morning you have breakfast laid on for us. Every day, every morning, you call us to come and sit and eat. Great is your faithfulness. So God, I pray that you would begin the healing process as painful as it is, that you would restore us. And thank you that there's no, no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Thank you that you wipe the slate clean. That relationship is always intact. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.